Today's message was brought to you by the gifts and love offerings of the people of Rancho Baptist Church in Temecula, California. Pastor Jason Swanson is our senior pastor here at RBC, and this message was recorded during our regular Sunday morning service times. Pastor Jason is currently in a series he's calling a walk through the book of Acts, Jesus at Work. And today Jason is in part 56 of our walk through the book of Acts. In a sermon he's entitled, Upsetting the World. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17, and today Jason's looking at verses 1 through 9. Here's Jason. We are continuing our walk through the book of Acts. We're finally getting back to the book of Acts. And if you could turn with me to Acts chapter 17. You kind of put your finger on verse 1. I have a question for you all that will frame where we are going this morning. And that that question is this. Is it possible for one person or or say a group of people to to turn the world upside down? Is that possible or or is that not possible? am, Am I talking literally, can they turn the world upside down? Or am I talking figuratively? Well, I would have said I'm talking figuratively, but recently my, my family and I watched the, the most recent Mary Poppins movie. I don't know if you guys have seen it and if you'd actually admit to me that you saw it if you did see it. But in, in, in this new telling of Mary Poppins, the kids at, at some point break a bowl and then they have to go get this bowl fixed. And so they go and they visit the second cousin of, of Mary. And as they, they walk into her house, it, it turns out that it is the second Wednesday of the month. And interestingly enough, every second Wednesday of the month, her house flips upside down. So as they walk inside, the floor is now the ceiling, the ceiling is now the floor, and everything is flip-flopped upside down. And you may be thinking, what on earth does that have to do with a sermon, Pastor Jason and and and, and what we are going to see this morning, but it has everything to do with the sermon. Because you may not recognize it, or you may not think in terms like this very often, but the world as we know it is upside down. It's flip-flopped. And again, I'm speaking figuratively. I'm not speaking literally. Where, Yeah. Why? Why is the world upside down? Why are things the way that they are today? And the reason is going back to the garden. Goes back to the fall of man. God did not intend everything to be like it is today. Right? In the beginning, everything was sweet. All of the living things, there, there weren't even thorns, there, there wasn't sweat, there, there wasn't struggle in marriage, there wasn't all these things that we see today. And if, and if we spent time going through the book of the Old Testament, all the books of the Old Testament, going through all of the Bible, we would see time and time and time again that the world as we know it is messed up and it has always been messed up since the beginning. Right? And then as we get to the life of Christ, you would think, okay, now the Son of God has come. The, the world will be right-sided. It will be turned towards the right way now. And, and, and it will be right-side up again. But instead, what happens? Those that, that have been waiting for the promised one, those that have been waiting for the Messiah, those that know the Scriptures that point to His coming, they miss Him. And so the world stays upside down. 
And then with the apostles. And as we've been watching the book of Acts unfold and, and Christ's church get planted and, and get shot out of Jerusalem and see it extending to all the different parts of the world, then do you see, oh yes, the, the world is now right side up? No. We, we see that the world is still upside down. And, and as we look at our world today, if you so choose to look at the news, which I recognize many people don't. Why? Because it's so depressing. But as you look at the news, you, you would have to come to the same con- conclusion that I come to, that, that this world is getting worse. It's not getting better. That this world is still upside down. How many of us, when we were in school, thought about a school shooting happening? How many of us dreaded fires that... That, that now we see happening all over the world, in Australia, everywhere. That the world is flipped upside down. But you know what the good news is? That one day there is going to be a man, the Son of God. He will come and He will right everything. He, he, he will restore everything to its original intent. Even better, right? He will take everything and He will restore it to its proper place. He will lift the curse of sin and all of its effects. He will fashion a new world that that will have a new heaven and a new earth. Can can you imagine? I'm not certain that we can imagine. But that is the Lord's plan. That has been the triune God's plan from the beginning. That He would change things. That He would restore everything back. And do you know who He's given this message to? Not that we're the ones that are going to restore, that we're going to change everything. Nobody's given us this message, the message of Jesus Christ, that He is coming. He, he's entrusted that message to us. And that is what we are to do, that we are to take this gospel message out. And yet we recognize that as we take this gospel message out, that at times people don't respond the way that we would like them to. Right? Right? Why? Because again, the world is upside down. They don't see the world as needing to be flip-flopped and and restored to anything. They they look at the world and go, oh man, what are you talking about? I I think things are pretty good. It's all because of their perspective. If if we were to turn back to to 1 Kings 17 and 18 and, and look at the prophet Elijah, we would see a man who did turn his world upside down. Right? He was called upon by the Lord to go to King Ahab. And up to that point in history, he was the worst, the most evil, the most wicked king that the nation of Israel had known. Why was he so wicked? Because he was wicked? Well, yes, he was wicked. But it's even more than that. It was because of his wife and the influence that his wife Jezebel had upon him and the nation of Israel. What did she do? She caused them to turn from Yahweh, to turn from worshiping the God of all gods, the one true God, Yahweh, and to worship Baal, right? And as a result, she pulled her husband along with her. And, and he set up temples where, where Baal was, was worshipped. And as a result, the Lord tells Elijah, hey, go to King Ahab. And I want you to tell him, that what he needs to do is he needs to repent. He needs to turn. But because you have not repented, because you have not turned, because you have taken 
My chosen people Israel, and you've led them to idolatry. You've led them to worship other gods. You've led them to worship Baal. What, what is going to happen is there's going to be no more rain. And you know what's really interesting is Baal was, was the god of rain. And so we know that the story, most of us do, that after that what happens, Elijah hides out. And Ahab's looking all over for him and he can't find him anywhere. And still no rain, no rain, no rain. Finally, the Lord tells Elijah to go to King Ahab. And do you know what, what King Ahab tells Elijah? As, as Elijah walks up to him, he goes, Oh, is it you, O troubler of Israel? Just think about that statement. He says, oh, it's you, troubler of Israel. That, that's flip-flopped, upside down. Right? Because it wasn't Elijah that was troubling Israel. It was King Ahab. But because King Ahab, in, in his world, things were flipped upside down, he looked at Elijah as the one who was upsetting the world. And what we're going to see this morning is something very similar. We're going to see that when the gospel is proclaimed, that, that it is responded to in one of two ways, right? E- either you reject it, and at times those who reject it can become violent, or you accept it, and you trust in it wholeheartedly, and it changes you forever. And we're going to see that this morning. We're going to see that Paul and Silas, and really Jason and, and this newfound church in Thessalonica, what they're doing is, is they are upsetting the world, the known world at this time. And as we move into 2020, we are now in 2020. It, it is so apropos that, that the Lord has us here looking at this church that will be established in Thessalonica and the way that they act, the way that they live out their belief, the way that they live out their Christianity as a body because it gives us an opportunity to look at ourselves, to look at us as a body, Rancho Baptist Church. What are we going to be like throughout 2020? What do we want to do? And as we look at Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9 in particular, how can we turn the world upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ? And we're going to learn some lessons from Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. So turn there with me. Acts chapter 17. As we continue on with Paul and Silas and his second missionary journey. Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous of and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before 
the city authorities shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we do each week, we ask that you would go before us now as we open your, your inspired word, that you would use it powerfully in each of our hearts, that you would guide us into truth, that you would teach us this morning how to turn this world upside down for you, how to point others to you, how to be a body that's all about the things that you're all about. So guide our time now. Renew our minds through your word and allow your Holy Spirit to be our guide and the one who illuminates and makes your word clear to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, what we are going to see is, is yes, they are upsetting the world. Yes, they are turning the world upside down. And what we have to ask ourselves again is, how do we do that? And what we see is nobody turns the world upside down without being obedient to Christ's command. Without being all about the Great Commission. Without being all about the Gospel. And that is what we are going to see. That again is the focus. For we are messengers sent out with a message. And the Lord wants to use that message to bring more and more to Himself. And we'll see this morning in in these nine verses... That if we want to turn the world upside down for Christ, then, then one, we must be committed to the proclamation of the gospel. We're, we're going to see four Ps here. Second, we must trust the Lord that as the gospel is proclaimed, that, that there will be people who will be persuaded that it is true. That there will be people who will believe. And yet we must also recognize that as that happens, as the proclamation of the gospel goes out, not only will there be people that are persuaded, but there will be people who won't be persuaded. There will be people who will want to respond in persecution. And that is what we see. And yet what we see finally in the last verse, verse 9, is we will see the hope of the provision that God provides for us in order to enable us to be able to stand up under whatever kind of persecution, whatever kind of suffering, whatever kind of hardship we might find ourselves in. And we can learn all of this from the Thessalonians. And the first thing that we see that we must understand, look with me again at at verse 1. We must understand the context. We must understand where Paul has been, where Paul is now going and where where Paul is planning on going to in the future. As well as Silas. Because we're we're taking things right in the middle again. We've we've taken a whole month off. And the last time that we were together, we, we must remember that Paul was in Philippi. And he was doing the Lord's work there. And as he was doing the Lord's work, he was able by God's power to to help this this group. 
that was in Philippi that, that becomes the, the believers in, of Philippi. And, and then after that, he, he goes and he, and he commands a demon to come out of a slave girl, right? And what starts off as so encouraging turns into something so not encouraging. As not only are they placed in jail, but they are beaten with rods. Paul and Silas. And as they are beaten with rods and and put into prison, we know that God has this miraculous plan and He allows an earthquake to come and it releases the, the, the bonds, the chains of all the prisoners. It opens the doors, which is not what a normal earthquake does. Obviously, this is the Lord. But He's doing this not in order to free Paul and Silas, but He's doing it in order to save that jailer by displaying His power. And then right after that, what happens? Well, they are then released. And then we pick it up in verse 1. Being reminded that, that no doubt they were still feeling the bruises, feeling the, the, the battering that they had had upon their bodies. No doubt limping. Perhaps still even bleeding a little bit from, from what had happened to them. And yet we see now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. If there was anybody that would have been able to play some sort of get out of jail card to where they could say, hey, you know what? We've done a good thing, but but our bodies are racked. We need to just go back home. We need to call it quits for this particular missionary journey. Let's go back home. We'll go back to Antioch and, 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 and we'll just regroup. We'll rest a little bit. If there is anybody that could have said that, it, it should have been Paul and Silas. But we don't see that at all. Instead, they, they keep going forward. Why? Because they recognize the import of what they were doing. Just how incredibly important it was for them to keep on giving the gospel. For them to, to keep on what? To keep on this, the proclamation of the gospel. That's what they were all about. And they weren't going to let anything Keep them from doing that. Even if they were bruised and battered and limping and and bleeding, they kept going. And so that we fully understand what this entailed, we must understand how long of a journey this was and what are they doing. It seems that that as they come to the, the first two cities, Amphipolis and Apollonia, that they only stay there for probably one night. Because the, the word used ha- traveling through is, is the idea of staying in a place for a very short period of time. For not stopping there. And so they, they don't stop and, and don't go and, and preach and evangelize these two areas. Why? Because their focus was on another city. They wanted to get to Thessalonica, which was the capital of Macedonia. It was a huge city of over 200,000 people. And they recognized that if they could get there and they could establish a church there, that the Lord could use that church to influence the whole world. And so they strategize and they determine and they commit themselves courageously to keep going and to go to Thessalonica, trusting that the Lord will go before them. And that is exactly what the Lord does, that he goes before them. And look at verses 2 and 3. And what happens next then? As it says, and according to Paul's custom, he went to them. Who does he go? He goes to the Jews. He goes to the synagogue. 
Is, is that because he only had a heart for the Jewish people because he was Jewish? Was he only thinking about himself? No, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He had a huge heart for everyone, but he also had a huge heart for his own people. He recognized that they needed to hear the gospel. In fact, he loved his own people so much that he, that he said in one of his epistles that he would be willing to, to give up his own life and give up his own salvation and spend eternity in hell for the sake of his whole nation believing. That's how much he loved his own people. But recognize that when it says that he, it was his custom to go here, that this wasn't easy. Because time and time again, as he goes to the Jewish people, as he steps into synagogues, do you know what happens? They don't respond favorably. In fact, nine times out of ten, and we're going to see it again this morning. They don't accept what he says at all, and, and they actually turn against him. And then they go and they get the city to turn against him. And, and we know from like Lystra what, what happened there. Well, they got so upset with him that they stoned him. And these were the very people who before these Jews came and stirred up the, the pot, they, they were ready to worship Paul and Silas as gods. And yet Paul continues to go and to approach his own people, even though he recognizes that they don't always respond favorably. What a lesson for us. How many of you have family members that you love dearly, that you would love to see more than anyone come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ? More than than your own family members. But as you have shared with them, they've just shut it off. Don't give up. Keep going and keep sharing Christ with them, just as Paul does with his own people, the Jews. So he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. So what does he do? Not just for one week. The idea here is for three solid weeks, he continually goes back to the synagogue and he teaches them. But notice how it says that he teaches it says that he reasoned with them. This doesn't mean that, that he was even evangelizing. That's not the word to evangelize. It's not the word what I'm doing right now, preaching. He wasn't preaching to them. This is the word to dialogue. This is the word to question and answer. This is the idea of bantering back and forth. You ask a question. They give an answer. They ask a question. You give an answer. And is this not a very good evangelism technique? Is this not what we should do as we spend time with people? That we ask them questions. Why to bring them in? And they ask questions. Why? So that they can fully comprehend what is being communicated. And notice that as he is reasoning, as he's having this question and answer time, Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, he's not doing this with the idea of sharing his own personal experiences. It it is perfectly acceptable and a good way to to get to know someone and for someone to get to know you, for you to, to share your testimony with them. But don't stop there. At some point, you need to do what Paul and Silas do and what Peter has done and what we've seen throughout the book of Acts is you need to get to the Scriptures 
as it says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures, not from his schooling, not not from some pamphlet that, that he had only, not from his experiences, but from the scriptures. And, and I would say that, that what that meant for Paul was, yes, he, he went to Isaiah 53. He went to Psalm 22, to Psalm 23, that he was pointing them to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the one that is prophesied about the coming great shepherd, the coming suffering servant. Look at what, what was prophesied back here in Isaiah. That is exactly what happened to Jesus Christ. Why? Because they are one and the same. And that is what he does. And he points them to the scriptures and, and that's what we must do. We, we must point them to the scriptures. But then does that mean we just quote John 3.16? Is, is that what evangelism looks like? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son who so believes in him and you do it real fast. Why? Be, be, because you, you don't want things to get awkward. Who so believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Oh, nice to meet you. Think about that. Bye. Is that what evangelism looks like? No, look at what else he does. He, he doesn't just have a dialogue. Then it goes on and it says that he was explaining the scriptures and giving evidence. What does that mean? That means to explain. That means to explain what was previously hidden. To make something evident that was not evident before. And do you know what to give evidence means? This is really sweet. This is the same word used for giving somebody food. Presenting food before them, before they eat. That's what this giving evidence is. It's, it's presenting someone with something that before they thought wasn't true. And so what do you do? You share God's Word. Yes, share John 14, 6. That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But explain it, what that means. That means there is no other way. That there is no life outside of Christ. That to gain eternal life, you must trust in Him and Him alone. And you explain the Scriptures. But what did He explain? What was the basis of what He was proclaiming? And what should be the basis of what we proclaim? What is the thing that is the essentials for the gospel, for this proclamation? Notice it is, again, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He doesn't forget any of those. That's what he zeroes in on. And he he explains to them that through the death of Jesus Christ, we see God's heartbeat for all mankind, but we also see sin. Do we not? For Jesus never would have died if there was not sin introduced into the world. And so when we see that the picture of Jesus' death, death exists, why? Because of sin. Sin entered the the world and so did death, right? There was no death before the sin in the garden. And Jesus shows us that that His death represents the idea that, that as sin entered the world, that now God requires death as the payment for sin. That goes all the way back to the garden as well, right? That as Adam and Eve sin, what does God do? He provides a skins from an animal, revealing that there was some sort of substitution that happened. Their life for Adam and Eve's life, the life of those animals. 
And Jesus does the same thing. He offers His life on behalf of others, on behalf of all those that would trust Him and believe in Him. Not for His own sins because He was sinless. But you know what is such good news about this is the life of Jesus does not end with Him on the cross. His suffering had to happen in order to to pay the, the penalty for our sins. But His life doesn't end in the grave either. His body does not see decay. His body does not rot. Instead, He is raised from the dead. And so the story of Jesus that does not end in the grave can be our story too. That we do not need to fear death. That we know that as Jesus conquered death, we will be able to conquer death as well. And God shows that He was pleased with what the Lord Jesus accomplished on the cross by raising Him from the dead three days later. But you know, this this message of the Gospel, this message of the cross of Christ, this message of sin, this message of hell, this message of a need for a Savior has been watered down a lot today in, in modern Christianity. In so many churches, do you know, they don't even mention the word sin. They, they don't want to mention the word hell. Why? Because that's construed as being unloving. That's construed as being unkind. Oh, I'm sorry, that's too judgmental. That, that's, that's too offensive. And so what do they do? They just skip that part. And, and yet, when you skip that part, you no longer have good news. You, you no longer have the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must make sure that the message of Jesus Christ is not watered down in order to fit our culture so that our culture accepts it. The, the reality is, is that God will save some through the preaching of the gospel, but many, many will reject the gospel. Why? Because it is offensive just in the gospel. But don't you be offensive. I shouldn't be the one that's offensive. Let the gospel in itself be the offense, as the, the Word of God talks about. So, so, so we, we, we see that, that what they were committed to was the proclamation of the gospel. And, it, and as the gospel is proclaimed, we must understand and we must trust the Lord that persuasion will happen. Look, look at verse 4. It's, it's just one small little verse, but it is so encouraging. And some of them, speaking of the Jews, speaking of those that were there Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath, listening to Paul and Silas, reasoning, doing this question and answering with them, and some of them were persuaded. This word persuaded means to cause to come to a particular point of view or course of action that before you thought was objectionable. Before you did not believe that that was the case, but now you have come to the point to where, yes, I understand the promised one of the Old Testament, of Isaiah and Psalm and and all these different books, these different scrolls that we have read for so many years, that He indeed is Jesus Christ. That they were persuaded and and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Did you, did you catch the discrepancy? The difference between how many were saved of what group and how many were saved of another group? This again to, to me reveals that, that the world is upside down. 
Notice how many Jews are saved. Some Jews are saved, but a great many of the Gentiles are saved. That doesn't make sense. The Jews are are the ones who have been prepared. The Jews are the ones that hold the word of God. The Jews are the ones that know about the promise of the coming one. The Jews are the ones waiting for their Messiah. And yet they are the ones who don't get it. Only a small group of them believe, but a whole bunch of Gentiles and women believe. Why? Because the world is upside down. Because what should make sense doesn't make sense. And because what we would say is wrong is now considered right. And don't we see that in our own world? That the envelope just keeps getting pushed further and further and further. And now marriage, anybody can get married to anyone they want to get married to. Right? But here we see the hope of the gospel. That some are persuaded, some are convinced, some are now placing their confidence completely in the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice too, there's more. And this is so challenging and yet so encouraging. Notice what also they do. They're not just persuaded alone, but then it says, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. What what does that mean? That they put little P's on, and S's on their shirts and they, they joined the Paul and Silas club. And it, and it was like a country club for, for Paul and Silas and all of his buddies. No, this means that they joined the work that Paul and Silas were doing. What are Paul and Silas doing? They're all about one thing. They're proclaiming the gospel. And so what do these new believers do? What do these Jews do? What do these Gentiles, what do these women do? They now proclaim the gospel. That's all that they are about. Why? Because they join in. My my question for us this morning, for you, is have you joined in? This this is discipleship. This this is what a church should be all about. Right? The body joining in together. Are you joined in? Have you joined a community group? Not that community groups are the end-all of end-alls, but that will help you to join in. Has the Lord gifted you in areas of music? Is that an area where you can join in? Hey, let, let me just say, if, and I know we've already turned in our little welcome cards, but, but you can put these in the back or on a chair or in back behind Mitzi back there. There's like this little thing you can little box you can stick them into. Listen, if you are interested, you want to know about, hey, I'd like to help out with the music ministry, or I'd like to help out on Wednesday nights with Awana, or I'd like to get more involved in women's Bible study. Tell me again when the women's Bible study happens. Or or Pastor Jason, he said something, that men are going to start some sort of morning discipleship accountability time. Man, I want to get involved in that. Or you know what? I want to, you fill in the blank. There are many opportunities to get involved. Take out one of the cards, write that down, put your name and let us contact you. Get involved, join in with what the Lord is doing. Why? Because he not only wants to use you to bless others, he wants to bless you as you serve. Do do you know that that the majority of what all churches say is you have 10% of the church doing all the work and 90% of the church sitting back? How about for 2020, with RBC, we make it our commitment, we trust the Lord that we're going to flip that, that upside down. And, and, and we're going to trust the Lord that 90% of us will be doing the work. 90% of us will join in and, and we'll let 10% stay 
back and they can sit. And do you know who those 10% are? Those are the new believers that are being brought in. Those are the new believers that we're discipling that aren't yet ready, but at some point they'll join in too. Can, can we pray towards that end? For, for that is what is happening here. T- turn with me. This is just awesome. Look, look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Because what we see here is the beginning of a church that Paul establishes. That Paul plants. That Paul invests in, but, but he only invests in it for a certain amount of time. It's, it's longer than three weeks because the, the church in Philippi sends him some love offerings to help support him when he's ministering in Thessalonica. So it's longer than three weeks, but it's not very long at all. And he invests and he plants this church. And, and what we see in verses, well, let's start at verse 2, is, is we see Paul's heart for this church. But we also see how in a short period of time, this church becomes a missionary church. This church becomes all about what Paul and Silas had represented and been an example to them about. They become all about evangelism, about proclamation of the gospel. Look, look at, at verse starting there. 1 Thessalonians. We're not certain exactly how long after the church is established that Paul writes this, but many believe it happens when he's in Corinth. Not too long after this. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God is choice of you, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So when they were saved and when the gospel was presented, they believed it came with the power of the Holy Spirit. Is that same power in us now? Yes, it is. And look at what the Holy Spirit does. As we see that they lived a certain life before them, being examples, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, you also became imitators of us and of the Lord. That's discipleship. They watched them, they learned, and then they began doing the same things that they were doing. Having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. What a testimony of God's grace in this church in Thessalonica. That, that he's to the point, hey, I don't have anything else to say because you guys are turning this world upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be so amazing if the Lord worked in our hearts and got us so excited as a body that this is what we did all the time. That we proclaimed Jesus everywhere. That we proclaim Jesus in the malls. That we proclaim Jesus in our neighborhoods. That we started taking people on groups and we started knocking on doors. We started inviting them to come here to church. That we went to the malls. Not just a select group of us, but many of us went to the malls. That we went to nursing homes. We went all over the place and we proclaimed Christ over and over again to such an extent that all the other churches in this area stopped 
and paid notice and said, man, that church is, is all about Jesus Christ and the proclamation of Jesus Christ. That, that's what Thessalonians were like. That's what the Lord did with them. And yet we must recognize too that as the gospel is proclaimed, that as people are persuaded and as they jump in as the Thessalonians did, what, what's the result? Oftentimes, some don't come to faith in Christ. And the way that they respond is, is through this persecution. Look at verses 5 to 8. Back in Acts 17. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. So what happens? So, so these Jews who, who are jealous of what is being proclaimed. Why? Because their world is being turned upside down and they don't like it. What do they do? They cause such a ruckus that they actually cause an uproar in the city. They actually turn the city upside down when they're accusing Paul and Silas and Jason and all the believers of doing the very thing that they are actually doing. It's very much like King Ahab with Elijah. Why? Because their world is turned upside down and they're not looking at things properly. So we shouldn't be surprised when this happens to us. Even when somebody starts shouting emotionally at us, which is that what is what this word means. When it says that they were shouting, it means that they were shouting so much that their voices got high. And they were screaming. When it says that they attacked Jason's house, how do you attack a house? Well, I guess you could go at a house with bats. But, but that's not what this means. This, this means to, it's a compound word. One to stand and the other one is over. So it's the idea of standing over someone. Why? So that you can pummel them. That's what they want to do. They, they want to pummel the believers in order to stop what is happening. So that their world would stop being shaken. So that their world would stop being changed. And we might think that, that this is a discouragement. Because time and time again, we, we've seen how the Jews respond. And yet remember that just earlier, some others actually did respond. And trusted the Lord. And we're, we're going to see... Next week, as, as they get to Berea, that there many Jews believe. And so it, it, it doesn't matter how you think somebody's going to respond. Share the gospel with them and, and trust that to the Lord. And finally, what, what we see is something that's maybe not so readily apparent in this text. And in verse 9, what we see is God's grace being manifested towards this early church in Thessalonica. Look at verse 9. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. You see, we must understand what's going on and what could have happened. This is the best of all of the possible scenarios that could have come out of the situation they're in. You see, they, they turned the city into a tumult. There was pandemonium going on. And this is a big city. And, and the, the authorities... 
that are running everything, they recognize, oh man, this could be our undoing. If we look like we are incompetent and we cannot rule this city, Rome will step in. Rome will send a, a, a big garrison, will, will come of soldiers, and they will take over this city by force and they will kick us out of our positions as the authorities here and they will bring in new men. Why? Because we've shown ourselves to be incompetent. Does that sound familiar to anything? Or to anyone, it's very much similar to the story of Pilate and Jesus and the Jews. Do you remember what happened there? The, the Jews come and they approach Pilate and say, hey, we want this man done in. And he looks at the whole situation. He says, he's done nothing wrong. And they basically say, we don't care. We want you to do what we say. And the implication there is, if you don't do what we say, it is not going to go well for you politically. So what does Pilate do? He washes his hands. And he gives Jesus over to them. And he caters. And he caves. And what could have happened here is the same exact thing. They could have catered, they could have caved, and they could have said, oh man, in order for us to look after our political careers, we need to stop this and we need to stop the strong. Let's not just take a pledge. Let's kill them. Because what they have done in the eyes of the people and, 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 and what they've been accused of doing, the charge that is brought towards them, not being hospitable, not turning the world upside down, but the third charge that they are proclaiming another king is an executionable offense. If they are not proclaiming Caesar alone and they are proclaiming another king, that is something that Rome took very seriously. But instead of, of overreacting like Pilate did and giving them over and, and possibly killing them, what do they do? God in His grace allows them to get out of the situation. And do you see that, that His provision is there? That it's understood that, that when they gave this pledge, that what this pledge was, was, was it was, it's, it's the paying of a bail or the paying of a bond or some sort of security deposit. That what they are saying is, hey, we will pay all this money and what we are telling you is Paul and Silas will leave and they'll never come back. And if they do come back, we recognize that our money will be forfeited. But in order to get us out of this situation, yes, we will do this and we will pay this bail to you. And many believe that, that when Paul talks later about not being able to come back to Thessalonica because Satan is keeping him from that, that, that he's speaking specifically of this bail and this agreement made with this church in Thessalonica that Paul can never return. And so he doesn't come back. And yet that's God's grace too because you know what we already read in First Thessalonians? This becomes a missionary church. You know what? It shouldn't have become a missionary church. It should have been squashed right here. It should have been done. They should have been so scared over what happened that they would not go out and, and preach to anyone or share the gospel with anyone. But instead, they, they turned Macedonia, they turned Thessalonica upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what the Lord wants to do in and through us. He wants to use us for His purposes and He will provide a way for us to stand up under it. So if we want to turn the world upside down, then we need to learn from, from these believers in Thessalonica. We need to be committed to proclaiming the gospel, the correct message of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must recognize the importance of discipleship and doing the work together. And finally, we must also recognize that, that opposition will come, but that our God is gracious. 
and that He will provide a way, the strength for us to stand up under it. Let me just end with some points to ponder. I've already talked about some of these. Consider how Paul reasoned with the Jews from the Scriptures. And, and, and remember, this was a question and answer, dialogue kind of format about the promised Messiah. What do you think? Are you able to use the Bible to do the same thing? How could you become better or more equipped in doing so? Listen, that's another thing you can write on, on your little welcome card. If you're interested in coming to some sort of evangelism training, say on a Saturday, write that down. Please let, let us know so that we can do that, so that we can equip everyone to be able to share the gospel, to give you confidence that you can do this, that you can take somebody to God's Word and, and share with them. Number two, consider how Paul kept going back to the Jews and sharing Christ with them, even though they oftentimes didn't accept what he said and caused him so much grief. I mean, stoning him, all sorts of other things. But he kept going back. How does this encourage you in, in reaching out to someone you love who has not responded well to the gospel in the past? And number three, and, and, and this has been the, the hardest one for me to consider all week long is this. Consider how Jason was accused of, of three things. He was accused of turning the world upside down. He was accused of being hospitable. And he was accused of proclaiming the rule of another king named Jesus. Would you be accused of the same things? If not, what do you see that needs to be changed? If I were to ask each one of you, when was the last time you invited somebody from our body to your home for lunch? How long would that go? Or out to lunch with somebody after a Sunday service? That, that could go back a long ways, right? I, I could, I could, Take pot shots at every one of these. If I were to ask you the last time you told somebody about Jesus Christ being your king, being your king of kings, right? And, and I'm saying this to myself. The, these are convicting questions. And yet these are things that we need to consider. These are things that, that the text takes us to and highlights because these are things that these Jews saw in Jason and all these other believers. These are things that our neighbors should see in us. That those familiar with us should see in us. Do they? Let me close our time. Gracious Heavenly Father, we stop and we, we thank You so much for Your Word. For how far reaching and significant it is, Lord, that we can take a look at those that have gone before us and we can glean so many wonderful, inspiring, encouraging things, Lord. We pray that you would use us, that you would use this body to turn the world upside down for you. For your glory, Lord. So go before us as we head out from here. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for being with us today. It's always a pleasure to serve you with this CD ministry. Here at Rancho Baptist Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples who love God, love others, and live to reach their world for Christ. And if you have any questions regarding this sermon, or just perhaps knowing God in a deeper way, don't hesitate to give us a call. Our phone number is area code 951-676-2911. Or you can reach us on the web at www.ranchobaptistchurch.com. Org. That's www.ranchobaptistchurch.org. 
Have a great day in the Lord, and God bless you as you continue to walk with Him.